0: As we come to God's word, let's ask him for his help. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me to speak what is true according to your word. And I pray that you would help all of us to to be refined and to be strengthened and to be uh, purified by your truth. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So we pray that by your word, which is sometimes foreign to us, sometimes hard to understand, we pray that you would be fashioning us as a people uh, for your own possession, to bring you great glory for, for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far through the book of Romans, um, this book has been a thorough unfolding of the redemption plan of God. Chapters 1 to 8 reveal to us the good news that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is counted righteous in his sight. These first eight chapters end with the celebratory climax that Eric preached for us last week, that if we are in Christ by faith, then nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a mountaintop that is. Then looking ahead a little bit, Romans 12 through 16 will walk us through Christian living, the ethics of God's redeemed. Paul is going to be telling us just what the Christian life ought to look like for everyone who believes the good news of Jesus Christ. Those are the two big panels of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 to 8 unfold the good news of God's salvation. Chapters 12 through 16 unfold the good life of God's saved people. But there's a third panel Here in the middle, between those two bookends, the middle panel of Romans is chapters 9 to 11, and this middle panel is a tough one. It deals with God's election, it deals with why some people believe in Jesus and some people do not, it deals with the matter of God's sovereignty in salvation. And this middle section is the part that many people find most difficult. And uh, I've been wrestling with uh, chapters 9 to 11 uh, over the last few weeks, and one of the questions I've been wrestling with is this, why does Paul, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why does he put this middle panel into the book of Romans? Why doesn't he just go straight from the good news of chapters 1 through 8 to the good life of chapters 12 through 16? Uh, Maybe if we had written it, that's what we would do. Um, He could have stuck with how we are saved and how we should live. And for many people, that's all they really want to know. But Paul didn't stick with that. He wrote this letter to the church at Rome in order to give them a more thorough grounding in the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul thought that this middle panel was important to include. And here's why. How we are saved and how we should live is not enough. In order to be thoroughly grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ, we also need to comprehend the glory of the God of our redemption. Paul gives us this middle panel, Romans 9 to 11, to be sure that we know that God is God. It deals with weighty questions. And questions that we all wrestle with. For example, why is it that some people believe in Jesus and are saved while other people do not? So over this next six weeks, we're going to walk through this middle panel of the book, and we're going to explore some of these hard questions. And as we do, we are going to be challenged with the godness of, of God. We are going to be confronted by the glory and the greatness and the complete otherness of God. And here's my encouragement to each of us during these next six weeks. Let's wrestle with what the verses are saying. Let's think it through. Let's dig in. These chapters are God's word to us and they reveal to us the God of our redemption. And this is an essential piece of our understanding of the good news. We need to understand not only the gospel of God, but also the God of the gospel. So my prayer is that we will all approach these chapters with open ears and that we will come to know our God more clearly and to love him more dearly. So chapter 8 ends on the mountaintop of exclamation. Chapter 9 begins in the valley of sober reflection. If we've been paying attention to the good news as Paul has enfolded it over the first eight chapters, the first eight chapters reveal the righteousness that comes from God to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, for the Jew and for the Gentile alike. But this good news to Jew and Gentile alike raises a question that any Jewish person who has been reading along with us would surely have. What about the Jewish people? If many Gentiles are being made righteous through faith in Jesus and many, many Jews are not, what is the deal? What about God's promise to his people Israel? If not all the Jewish people have been saved through faith in Jesus, does that mean that God has failed in some way? Does that mean that God is not faithful to his promise? How can so many Jews be left out of God's saved people in Christ? And these are the questions that Paul deals with in Romans 9 to 11. Paul starts by sharing his own heart for his fellow Israelites. Look again at verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You hear Paul's anguish for his fellow Jewish people who have not believed in Jesus. And these are not just idle words. He's not just blowing smoke here. Paul desires the salvation of his fellow Israelites so much that shockingly, he would put his own salvation aside for theirs. He would prefer that he would be accursed and cut off from Christ if that would secure salvation for his fellow Jewish people. Isn't that remarkable? I don't know that I could say that. And Paul's anguish for the salvation of his fellow Jews is especially remarkable given that they have tried to kill him several times. He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, minus one, which is where they would uh, rip rip the uh, subject's back to shreds, uh, and they would they would only beat them forty times or forty times minus one, because it was thought that forty times would be lethal. They beat Paul to the brink of death five times, and still he would give anything for their salvation. We see Paul's heart of a shepherd, his reflecting the pattern of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus, Paul is putting others before himself, even if it means that he would bear the curse of God himself. What Christ-like love Paul has for his fellow Jews. And if we would expect anyone to inherit God's salvation, it would be Paul's fellow Jews. After all, look at what belongs to the Jewish people in verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, The worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Lord gave the Israelites his covenants, his salvation promises, his law. He revealed his glory to them. It's to it is from them that Christ came. So we might expect the Jews to be flocking to Jesus in faith, but that's not the case. Only some of them, comparatively few of them, have come to faith in Jesus so far. But before we go on to Paul's explanation of why that is, there's a little phrase in verse 5 that we need to notice. We might easily miss it because it's a little phrase. But look at the end of verse 5 again. Paul says, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see what Paul is saying there? Unambiguously, clearly, Paul is stating the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is himself God over all. Jesus Christ is God Almighty, the one who is blessed forever. So let me ask you, is your view of Jesus big enough? Jesus is the greatest teacher but he is not just a teacher. Jesus is certainly the perfect example of how we should live, but he is not just an example. Jesus is indeed the Savior, the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he is not just the Savior. He's all these things, but he is also God over all. More than all these other things, Jesus Christ is God Almighty, as Jesus and all of the apostles together proclaim. Which means that when it comes to Christianity, we can't just have a side of Christianity. Let me do my thing, and I'll take a side of salvation, please. We can't just have a little bit of Christian morality Jesus is God Almighty in human flesh. We can't just have a little bit of Jesus on our terms. We have to bow the knee. We have to surrender to his terms. In our lives, Jesus must either be Lord of all or not at all. How this divinity of Jesus Christ should challenge each of us. How, how could we think that we, we could just have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord when he is God over all? And since Jesus is the God of Israel in human flesh, the salvation God promised to send the Jews, why have so many of the Jewish people not believed in him? What has gone wrong? Has God's word failed And Paul anticipates that question, but he doesn't actually ask it. Sometimes he asks the question and then answers it. He doesn't ask this one, but he answers it before it's asked in verse 6. But it is not as though God's word has failed. Why not? Look at the answer in verse 6. Here's the reason why God's word has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Why haven't all of the Israelites embraced their God, Jesus Christ? Because not all of those who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What does this mean? It means that not everyone that has Jewish DNA is going to inherit God's promise of salvation. means that not everyone who is a physical descendant of Israel is going to be a part of God's eternally saved people. I like the way the Net Bible puts verse 6. It says, For not all those who are descended from Israel are truly Israel. Although they are all physical descendants of Israel, they are not all part of true Israel, God's saved people. And this presents us with an important fact. When it comes to God's salvation, physical descent is not enough. Perhaps you're thinking, well, my parents are Christians, my grandparents are Christians, so I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm good. Well, maybe you've been blessed with a Christian heritage. Maybe your grandparents are Christians. Maybe your parents are Christians. But salvation is not hereditary. Having Christian parents does not save you. Having believing parents doesn't save a person in the Old Covenant. And having believing parents doesn't save you in the New Covenant. You have to come to Jesus in faith for yourself. And even for Israel, under the old covenant, just because someone was a physical descendant of Israel, that does not guarantee that they will inherit the promise of salvation. And that's Paul's point. Not all who are descendants of Israel belong to Israel. And he goes to the Old Testament scriptures to show that it has always been this way. It has always been that not all who are descended from Israel are truly Israel. Uh, Paul's first example is the two sons of Abraham. In verse 7, Paul quotes from Genesis 21, where the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here Paul is calling to mind this whole story of Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. He was the recipient of God's salvation promise. And part of the promise that God made to Abraham was offspring. And after years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah waiting, no offspring came. So what did they do? They took matters into their own hands, and they orchestrated the birth of Ishmael through Abraham's maidservant, Hagar. But after a time, the Lord told Abraham that Ishmael was not the offspring that would inherit the promise. Instead, when Abraham and Sarah were very old, God miraculously brought about the birth of Isaac from Sarah's own barren body. And here's the lesson that Paul is drawing out from this story: two physical descendants of Abraham, but only one of them inherited the promise of salvation. The Lord confirms his intentions again to Abraham in Genesis 21:12. "Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named." Through Isaac, not through Ishmael. So physical descent was not enough. Ishmael was descended from Abraham, But he wasn't the heir of the promise, only Isaac was. And verse 8 brings home the point of this example from the Old Testament. Paul says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Not physical descendants, but descendants of. Who inherit the promise? Physical descent isn't enough. God had chosen that one physical descendant of Abraham would inherit the promise, and one physical descendant would not. So, even in the case of Abraham's sons, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Well, then Paul gives a second example, also from the book of Genesis. We see it in verse 10. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told... The older will serve the younger. So Isaac and Rebecca were having twins. And while Rebecca was pregnant with the twins, God gave Rebecca a little lesson what to expect when you're expecting. And the surprise is that God's plan for these twins was going to be totally backward. It would not be the normal way where the older son inherits the blessing and the younger son serves the older. God's plan would be backwards. The younger son, Jacob, would inherit the blessing and the promise, and the older son, Esau, would serve the younger. And why is it going to be totally backwards with these twins? On what basis? will the younger son inherit the salvation promise of God that would normally belong to the older son? Verse 11 tells us the shocking reason. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, it wasn't because of anything that these twins had done. They hadn't even been born yet. God's choice was not on the basis of their works. In fact, if you go back and you read Genesis, after these twins are born and they grow up, the stories of Jacob and Esau, Jacob doesn't seem deserving at all. Esau seems like the more noble one, at least at times. But it doesn't have anything to do with their nobility. It doesn't have anything to do with their works. It isn't based on what they deserve. So why does Jacob inherit the salvation blessing and not Esau? Verse 11 tells us, and I want us all to see it. In order that God's purpose of election might continue or we might say, in order that God's sovereign plan of election might endure, might stand. So what is it that determines which of the physical descendants will inherit the promise? It's only God's sovereign plan of election. God's mysterious Choice. Not their works. Not anything they had done, whether good or bad. God simply chose one and not the other by his own mysterious plan of sovereign election. God's own free choice, unrelated to their deeds or their merits. As the end of verse 11 says it again, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's an interesting way to finish the sentence. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, it wasn't because of them that God chose one over the other, it was because of him, because of him who calls, because of God's choice. And as we saw last week in Romans 8, verse 30, this word calls doesn't refer to God's general calling. There is a general calling, an external calling that goes out to all people everywhere. But this this kind of calling isn't talking about that. It refers to his special calling, what theologians call his effectual calling. It means The internal calling within the human heart that leads people to embrace his salvation. So, the reason Jacob was chosen, elected, called to salvation, and not Esau, was only because of God's own mysterious choice, his sovereign purpose. And Paul drives home this point with a very poignant scripture quotation from the prophet Malachi this time. We see it in verse 13. Verse 13 will blow your mind. As it is written in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob, I loved, but Esau I hated. Do you see God's unmistakable choice there? Jacob he loved, Esau, he hated. Now perhaps we bristle at the notion that God hated Esau. We don't like to think of God hating anything. After all, God is love. But in fact, God does hate things. He hates evil, he hates injustice, he hates falsehood. God hates many things. But what about God hating a person, Esau? How do we square this with the very scriptural idea that God is love, that God loves the world, that God loves humanity made in his image? Well, from other scriptures, we can agree that whether... Esau is chosen or not, God loves Esau too. After all, God loves even his enemies. That's why Jesus calls us as followers of him to love our enemies, so that we are imitating God's love for his enemies. Listen to Luke 6.35. Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So, why should we love our enemies? Because we're supposed to be imitators of God, who loves His enemies, who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Likewise, Matthew 5 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So there's a, a, a scriptural sense in which God loves all people, even his enemies, even Esau. So, what does it mean that God hates Esau? This language of love and hate is a Hebrew expression. It's a Hebrew figure of speech. Jesus uses it also. For example, Jesus calls us to hate our own families. Luke 14:26 says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Now, we aren't called to hate our families. Not in the normal, everyday sense. God calls us to provide for our families, to love our families, to honor them, to cherish them. This language of love and hate that Jesus uses here speaks of choice. Jesus is saying that we have to make a choice between the two. We have to declare our allegiance our loyalty on the right side. And when a choice has to be made between following Jesus and following our own families, our first loyalty needs to be to Jesus. We have to hate our families, so to speak, by loving Jesus ahead of them. And Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated is a similar kind of expression. It speaks of God's election. When it comes to God's election unto salvation, God chooses Jacob and he rejects Esau. So we shouldn't expect that all the Jewish people are going to inherit salvation in Jesus. Why not? Because it has always been the case, Paul says, that not everyone who is a physical descendant of Israel is part of God's true Israel. Only those whom God has chosen according to his mysterious purpose of election, not because of anything we do, but based solely on God's free and mysterious choice. Now, maybe... This is very hard for you to hear. Maybe this is not at all what you think about God or his ways. And I am not I am not interested in you thinking the way I do about God. But I am interested in you wrestling with what God says about himself in his word. So will you do that? Can we make a deal? that you and I will wrestle as best we can with what God says about himself in his word. We're going to be in this tough section for six weeks. And my, you know, I don't have any interest in saying things that I think. I don't have any interest in that. That's not what you need. Uh, What I think is not that valuable at the end of the day but what god says about himself is for our good and however we do it to the best of our ability we need to take it on board take his truth on board and make sense of it and embrace it and if salvation as as it says here if salvation is not based on works it's not based on merits it's based on God's choice, it's based on him who calls, his mysterious purpose of election that we don't understand and we can't control, then we ought to marvel at our own salvation. If we are among those who have believed in Jesus We can't boast and say, of course I belong here. I deserve God's salvation. It's meant to make us cry out, why me, Lord? What am I doing here? And God's answer to that question, it's not because of you. It's because of me. It's because of my purpose of election that you're here. It's because of my choice that you have believed in Jesus. So in this middle section of Romans, we begin to encounter the godness of God. God's greatness and his glory and his otherness and his holiness and his sovereignty, which is beyond our comprehension, it's beyond our understanding. God is God. And if we're going to have a thorough grounding in the good news, as Romans has been written to do, we need to embrace the godness of God, the greatness and the sovereignty and the glory of our God. We need to embrace the reality that salvation is not at all something that we do. It's not at all something that we deserve. It's not at all something that we can control. It is the result of God's own mysterious choice, His purpose of election. It is because of Him who calls. And if you're wrestling with this, that's the point. Paul wants us to get to the place where our God is bigger, where our God is as big as the God who is. Perhaps you're left at the end of this passage with a question, a big question. The primary question has got to be how can this be fair? Well, that's the question that Paul takes on in next week's passage. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we we pray that you would hold us in by your word. Help us not to go off the rails in one direction or another. Help us to hold all of the things that your your word inspired by the holy spirit uh, by those who were carried along by the holy spirit to write what is for our instruction so that we might know you help us to hold all of those things together even if we don't understand them all even if we can't tell you how they all fit together we can submit to you and say i i agree with your word And we know that if we do, that it will be for our good. Father, we acknowledge that you are altogether sovereign, altogether glorious. It's not because of us, it's because of you. And we thank you for your mercy and your goodness that is completely undeserved, all of grace. And like Paul, how we want that lavish mercy and grace to to be poured out on many, many more people whom we know and love and many people around the world whom we don't even know. So we pray that as we preach the gospel, as we speak the good news of Jesus, that you would be calling people to yourself, All of grace for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.